Hi guys, I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. Welcome to the Goop Podcast. One Thursday of every month, I'll be interviewing a culture changer. And every Thursday in between, editors from our content team will be sitting down with a spate of proactive thinkers and industry disruptors. Today's guest is Anita Morjani, the author of Dying to Be Me and What If This Is Heaven? Her story is wild. After a four-year battle with end-stage lymphoma, she had fallen into a coma, an organ failure. Her mother and husband said goodbye as she was not expected to live. She had a near-death experience while in the coma, which we'll let her tell you about. And when she woke up, she knew she had the power to heal. Five weeks later, she left the hospital cancer-free. Anita sat down with Elise Lunin, the chief content officer here at Goop, to talk about what she learned about living after going to the other side. What I invite people to do is drop what is not you and set yourself free. That is healing. There's so many mind-bending pieces to Anita's story. For one, her spontaneous healing is medically documented. But what I think is really striking is Anita's message about illness, that we can take autonomy and responsibility over our health without shouldering any blame. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now, let's get to Elise and her interview with Anita Morjani. February the 2nd, 2006, should have been the last day of my life. On that day, doctors told my family that I was dying. I was in a deep coma because I had end-stage lymphoma, and my organs were now shutting down. I'd been suffering from lymphoma for four years, and it had spread throughout my lymphatic system, and it had metastasized. So now I had tumors in my breasts and in my abdomen, and my lungs were filled with fluid. And by that point, uh, my body had stopped absorbing nutrition. I weighed about 85 pounds. I was connected to oxygen. I was connected to a food tube, a nutrition tube. And the doctors were telling my family that my organs were now shutting down one by one and I was going through the dying process. Unbeknownst to everybody around me, even though my physical body was in a coma, I was actually aware of everything that was happening. I was aware of the doctors and the nurses that were buzzing around me and putting tubes into my veins. I was aware of my family, who were distraught, by the way. And um, this was happening to me in a hospital in Hong Kong. And my mom and my husband were there. My husband was by my bedside, holding my hand. But the thing is, even though my physical eyes were closed, I could see everything that was going on. And... The way I could see it, though, was very different from normal sight, like when we're using our eyes. It was like I was outside of my body, and it was like I had 360-degree peripheral vision, and I could see all around, all at once. And then I started to notice that because I was no longer in my physical body, that I could even see my physical body lying there on the hospital bed below me. And I also noticed, though, that I felt amazing. I felt, for the first time in four years, I felt free and all the pain was gone. 
and all the fear was gone, the fear of the cancer, the fear of death, the fear of the treatment. There's no words to even describe what I felt. I sometimes say it felt like I was enveloped in this feeling of love, like unconditional love. And I've realized since then that love is the absence of fear. And because all the fear was gone, it just felt like I was just enveloped in this feeling of just love. And it was nothing like the love that we feel here in physical life. Because here in the physical, I had always felt that I had to work really hard at being lovable, at being worthy and deserving of love. Whereas now, on this other side of the veil, I felt as though I was loved just because I existed. I was, I didn't have to work at it, so it was like a completely unconditional, divine love. And I reached a point where I saw the essence of my deceased father. My dad had died 10 years prior to this, and when I was growing up, I had had a really turbulent relationship with my dad where because of my culture, I'm Indian by ethnicity, and my parents brought me up to have an arranged marriage, but I rebelled against it. And when they had arranged a marriage for me, I ran away. And so I had brought a lot of shame to my family and to my community and also to the groom, the prospective groom's family and his community. I brought a lot of shame and embarrassment. So I always felt that I had let my dad down. Here I was in the other realm, his spirit, you know, his soul and my soul. And I expected to be judged by him. I expected to be judged by whoever, by God, by my dad, for all the things that I'd done wrong. But there was no judgment. There was only pure, unconditional love from my dad as well. Pure, unconditional love. And I realized that when we die, when we cross over, not only do we leave behind our physical bodies, but we also leave behind our gender, our race, our religions, our culture, and all the layers of beliefs that we've accumulated over this lifetime. All of that gets left behind. And what crosses over is so pure. It's our pure essence, our pure spirit. Having a label to it, you know, our race, our gender, our religion, our culture, all those labels actually limit what we truly are. Who we are at our core without all those layers is something much too big to be labeled. It's something so much more powerful and something so much more pure. And so here I was in this realm, my pure essence and my dad's pure essence. And all I felt from him was pure, unconditional love. And I understood that everything that I had ever done in this life, everything I had done to hurt other people or to hurt my parents, came from the layers and layers of cultural conditioning and me rebelling against it. In other words, just as much as I was a victim of my own culture, my dad was a victim of the same culture, and he believed the best thing he could do for me was to um, find a suitable husband for me. That was his cultural upbringing. But I realized that in that realm, 
when all these layers are just dropped, we see each other for who we truly are, and there's no judgment. There's no need for judgment because there is nothing to judge. And I reached a point where my dad wanted me to know that I had to go back, that I couldn't stay there any longer, that I had to go back because it wasn't my time to die and I hadn't completed my purpose. And no part of me wanted to come back because it was just so beautiful there. And over here, I was suffering and my family was suffering, taking care of me. But I started to realize that in this state or in this realm, I had so much clarity. I knew exactly why I had come into this life, why I had been born. I knew why I got cancer. I knew how every thought and every decision I had made in my life had contributed to this point where I was lying there on that hospital bed dying. I knew that we humans are actually a lot more powerful um, than we have been led to believe. And I started to realize that now that I know this, if I chose to go back into my physical body, that it would heal. And it was at that point that my dad said to me, now that you know the truth of who you truly are, go back and live your life fearlessly. And it was around then that I started to open my eyes and come out of the coma. Now, a lot actually happened when I was in that realm. And that was the shorter version of the story, and we can go into it. But um, as I opened my eyes, I was still extremely delirious. I was lying there in the hospital, in the intensive care unit, with all these tubes connected to me. And I was delirious, and I started to say to my family, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to die. Dad is here. Dad says it's not my time. And then slowly, though, I started saying things that had been going on, which was going on while I was in the coma. I started to say, oh, that's the doctor that took fluid out of my lungs so that I could continue to breathe. And that's the doctor that was trying to put the tube into my veins. And I was saying all these things and everybody was getting surprised. How did you know? And that's when they started to realize something had happened. And over the next four days, the tumors shrunk by 70%. And the doctors said they don't even know what to write in my medical records. They'd never seen anything like that before. And um, three weeks later, they were saying, wow, uh, we just can't find the cancer, but we're going to keep looking just in case. At the end of five weeks, they said, there's no trace of cancer. And they let me go home to live my life cancer-free. And that was in March of 2006. It is a wild story. And what's so incredible about it is that it's medically documented. It's not like you were somewhere saying, oh, I had cancer and I, and I recovered and I'm here. I mean, it is doctors have looked at your case files trying to understand how you could spontaneously heal beyond all the other parts of your story that are so wild you know, even despite the healing, even just having an out-of-body experience where you were observing, because in your book too, you talk about going to visit essentially, I don't, I don't know exactly the right language, but your brother, he was flying to see you, right? And knowing that he was on, on his way. And 
It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I knew my brother was trying to get to me before I died, and I could actually see him on the plane. And so then there was so much that happened because it time was very different there. It felt, when I came out of it, it felt like I was gone for a lot longer than 30 hours. Interesting. It seems almost like you downloaded this fountain of information from your dad and your best friend who had passed from cancer was also there, right? Yes. But how did how did the information come? Like, is it just suddenly you knew? Yeah, so let me see if I can explain it. I like to use analogies because words don't do it justice. We don't have words in our language to describe it. So the information continues to unfold as I live my life. And the way I describe it is if you imagine uh, you've been blind your entire life, imagine you've never had sight. From the time you were born, you were blind. So your world is navigated through sound and smell and taste and touch, but you have no idea what color is, what it even means. When people say the sky is up above, it's very hard for you to really conceptualize what that means. Or if someone says that wall at the end of the room is 20 feet away, they're telling it to you because they can see it visually, but you actually have to walk the distance to measure it. And so, and if somebody hands you two pieces of cloth, two pieces of fabric, and says one's red, one's blue, you're going like, well, this one's heavier than the other, this one's denser than the other, but what do you mean by one's red, one's blue? So now imagine if one day you have sight, and you're taking it all in, and you're like, oh my gosh, I understand now. I understand what height means. I understand what it means to be able to When people look at a structure and say that has 12 stories or seven stories, I would literally have to walk those stories to measure it or get in an elevator. And even getting in an elevator, it was hard for me to conceptualize because I'm getting into this little room and then I'm coming out and I'm somewhere else. It's like being in a different dimension after walking into one room, coming out. And now I understand what it means that the sky is blue and sometimes the sky is gray and and I understand what color and, and everything makes sense. You even understand perspective and distance and everything. Now imagine, though, you've gone back to being blind, but you're in a world where everybody else is blind and they've never had sight. And now you're trying to explain to them what it is that you experienced when you had sight. And that never goes away. But those people who are blind will say to you things like, it's your imagination. It's not really true. There's no such thing as color. And if you live in a world of blind, the word color wouldn't even exist because they don't see it. They don't know what it is to create such a word. But you try and explain it to them and they're going to say, there's no such thing. There's no such thing because they can't perceive it. But you have perceived something different and you now have different tools because you perceive the world differently. Like for me, I perceived illness differently. I saw it as something different. And it's like, imagine being the blind person and suddenly understanding the height of buildings or understanding distances and seeing the shortcut. So it's like a whole different sensory organ that's opened up. And so you navigate the world differently. That's what happened with me. There are many fascinating parts of your story, but going to this idea of of both spontaneously healing and then also 
what you learned about how you had created your cancer, co-created your cancer, or created a world for yourself in which cancer thrived. Yeah. When we extrapolate that for people who are might be similarly terrified of getting cancer or might be going through cancer right now, like how does that how do you how do you extend that idea to other people? So number one was when I was in that realm, I realized that cancer is not the physical disease that we believe it is. We attack cancer uh, purely from the physical perspective. It manifests from a much deeper level, the invisible level, which, again, it's like the sighted person can see where it starts. Right now, we spend all our time fearing disease when we don't even know what it means like to truly be well in on every level on not just physical but spiritually mental mentally emotionally on every level what does it mean to be well so for example if i was in charge of a cancer center we call it a let's let's just call it an oncology center if i was in charge of that i would change the name of oncology center to healing sanctuary for a start um, the second thing I would do is if somebody was diagnosed with cancer, when if they were seeing me, if I was somebody's coach who had cancer, I would start by asking them questions like, have you suffered a trauma recently? Have you lost somebody, a loved one? You know, in other words, I would get to the bottom as to have they been through a divorce? Has somebody close to them died? I would ask them, are you lonely? Do you have people in your life who love you? Do you have people in your life who you love? Are you following your passion? Are you following your calling? Do you know your purpose? Does your life have meaning? These are the kinds of questions I would ask them, and I would take them down this path. And then I would work with them, or I would have a team of people to work with them to help them from where they are now to get to optimum health. In other words, we would take where they are now as the baseline and get to optimum health. What cancer centers are doing currently is that they are focusing on the disease. They're not focusing on health. They're not focusing on that person's life. I will be focusing on taking them from where they are now to optimum health. And optimum health means having a reverence for life, a joy for life, and coming from there and their body starting to heal and them wanting to do things for their body that is very healing. Whether they choose alternative or chemotherapy, that would be up to them. But the idea is to get them from here to healing and not fearing illness and fearing treatment. What's happening right now is from the moment a person gets diagnosed, it's like, oh my God, it's the C word. I'm going to die. And then the next thing is, okay, here are your treatment protocols. I'm saying this because this is what I went through. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Anita Morjani in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. Did you know that the personal care industry isn't regulated by the FDA? While the European Union has banned north of 1,400 chemicals, the U.S. has banned only 11. This is why we started the Goop Clean Beauty Shop, to vet the very best products that don't rely on any toxic ingredients. 
True Botanicals, a company that is setting the standard for clean and effective skin and body care, was one of the first lines we carried. I've had rosacea since I was young and learned how important it is to keep my skin both exfoliated and extra moisturized. I'm always looking for really potent hydrating options and True Botanicals Calm Pure Radiance Oil works perfectly for my skin. I use it on clean skin before applying Goop's Night Cream. They actually have an oil for every skin type. True Botanicals even has a virtual quiz you can take on their website to help figure out the right collection of products for you. Like Goop, True Botanicals is a company run by women, women who believe we deserve better from the beauty industry. They want to convince everyone that clean beauty is just as powerful as conventional products. To give their potent, non-toxic products a shot, go to truebotanicals.com and type in code GOOP at checkout for a one-time 15% discount. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Anita Morjani. This must be an incredible thing to carry in your life to have had both this to both have survived and I'm sure that 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 in of itself is probably triggering for people who have loved ones who have not survived but also I would imagine it's an incredibly triggering message to carry this idea that we have so much autonomy over our health right like I think when I think about I want to believe it's someone else's fault right or genetics or asbestos I don't want to believe that I am have this power. So how do you, how does that translate? How do you work with that? That's a great question. So first of all, um, I want people to know that if they're sick, it's not their fault. Even though we we are stronger and more powerful than we believe, and saying it's your fault and taking responsibility are two different things. So it's kind of like if uh, you were abused as a child, it's absolutely not your fault. But if you are still dealing with the repercussions, the emotional repercussions as an adult, it's your responsibility to heal from that. So uh, nobody else is going to come and heal you. You kind of have to take the responsibility to climb out of that. So from that perspective, I tell people that you really do have a lot of power over this. Having said that, at the same time, it's not about going and doing and doing more and learning more and being more. So this is the dichotomy, is that you are very powerful, but what has happened is that over the years, this has been conditioned out of you. You were born powerful. You were born with the ability to heal. But we lose our way because we, one of the biggest things I realize for me, and a lot of people relate to this, is our biggest fear is shame. Mm -hmm. And because our biggest fear is shame, and also disappointment, we, we fear disappointing other people. That's how we lose our way. We're constantly trying to please other people. I grew up as a people pleaser, a doormat. That's how I lost my way. I was trying to please everybody except myself. And I realized I had become somebody I am not. And when we start to become someone we're not, it gets hard to hold on to this persona that we've created. But whereas the only thing we have to do is to be who we are. So when I say you have power or control and healing is your responsibility, it's not like a, oh my God, it's my responsibility, what do I do? 
That's what I used to do. When I had cancer, I thought, I have to heal. What do I do? And it's so stressful taking that on. What I invite people to do is relax. Let go of what is not you, because who you are is already healed. When I came back, when I came out of the coma, I knew I was already healed. The doctors were telling my family I was still critical. They said I was delusional. And they said I was still critical and I was still connected to machines. I knew I was already healed, but the physical me had to catch up. All I had to do was relax and wait for the body to catch up. Another example I give is... um, You all know the artist Michelangelo who used to carve these beautiful statues out of marble. And he'd carved this beautiful angel. And somebody said to him, how did you get this beautiful angel out of this clunky block of marble? And uh, you're an amazingly talented artist. And he said, no, the angel was always there. I just chipped away at what was not part of the angel, and I set the angel free. So what I invite people to do is drop what is not you and set yourself free. That is healing. Mm. That is healing. Mm. That's an amazing idea. So thinking about the theories of consciousness, that there are sort of two schools, right? The school that says, oh, the brain, we're essentially machines. The brain creates consciousness. When the brain is extinguished with death, consciousness dies. And then there's the other school that says we are spiritual beings having a physical experience and that when we die, our souls cross, which is what you experienced. What an incredible experience. I wouldn't have to go through what you went through to have your experience. But why do you think there is that filter? Why do you think that we have to be blind instead of sighted? What is our purpose here? Not to throw a really big question in your lap, but (laughs) did you learn that on the other side? You know, usually when people ask me what's our purpose here, the short answer I give people is to eat chocolate. Why else? Because we we have no physical bodies on the other side. um, (laughs) But one thing I do believe uh, is that when we come here, when we are born here, we actually don't have those filters. We come here with the intention of playing full out and being all that we can be and shining our light as bright as we can. We come here with the same intentions that... I came here with the second time I came around. And because when I came back from the other side, um, the first thing I wanted to know is, why did I have to go through all that to learn this? Why doesn't everyone know it already? Why aren't we born knowing it? And then that's when it struck me. But wait a minute. What I had was technically a rebirth. I came from the other side. Surely when we're born the first time, we know this already. So what is actually happening is that Kids know it. Babies know it. You look at babies. They know. You look your own two children. I'm sure they are so close to spirit. They're so close to their true essence. But our systems, our education systems, our even our religious systems, um, our governments, all of it conditions it out of us. Our medical systems. Our medical systems teach us that our bodies are pretty dumb and stupid and need intervention for everything. That's not what we're supposed to be conditioning ourselves to believe. So what we actually know is being conditioned out of us. And this is why I also say 
when something, when you're lost, when something is wrong, it's not about going and doing more courses or reading more books. It's about letting go and dropping what is not you because we've accumulated all this from our conditioning, which is actually getting in the way. Are you still able to connect with your dad? Do you yeah, feel him? I do. I feel closer to my dad uh, after having the near-death experience than before. But I, I also feel closer to him now than I did when he was alive because I feel him actually guiding me without all those cultural filters getting in the way. How does that come through for you? I mean, I've heard of people who have had these experiences who come back and are essentially psychic or, or do you do meditation? Like, how do you, have you been able to go back there? Yes, I have. So I go back there quite frequently. So I was hesitant to say that. But yeah, I go back there quite frequently. I feel connected most of the time. So when people ask me, like, do do I meditate? The answer is actually no, because I spend most of my days and time connected. So it's more like, when am I not connecting is more, more like it. Um, so there are times that I'm jolted out of that state, but I actually have found that um, ever since I came back from that side, I'm finding it so much more pleasant to stay in that state. Every now and then, like if um, somebody blares the news and there's all this nonsense going on in the world, that will kind of jolt me out of the state and say, oh my gosh, humans are so weird. But, <laughs> but I think I prefer staying in that state where, and I feel so guided all the time. I just feel guided all the time. It's not just my dad, but he's a lot of it, my best friend. I mean, there are times when I will say something, I will do something, and immediately I'll know that, oh my gosh, it's her. I would never have known that, but I know it's the, exactly the kind of thing that she was good at. I'll tell you another thing. I have never been a writer or an author. My best friend was. Mm. She was a very good writer. I've never been one my entire life. It was only after this experience have I been a writer, and I love writing now. And very often I feel it's her helping me. It's my story. It's my experiences. But I feel it's her helping me write it in a way that is that makes it interesting for people to read. It seems, and I'm sure other generations have felt this before, but it seems like cu culturally across the world, globally, really, like we are in darkness in so many ways. That And I know that there are people who believe like we're the sea turning itself inside out so we can go towards the light. Yes. Like, do you, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel like we are like consciousness is cracking open that people are starting to sort of reconceive their lives? I think if you, from a framework of thinking about your life as what is your sole purpose? And we're all here to, like you said about Michelangelo, like emerge as our true selves and, and, it feels like it's spreading, yes. that idea. Like, do you feel that? I do. I'm actually extremely optimistic, extremely, because um, it's almost like people are experiencing the shadow side of humanity right now, and they don't like it. And that's what is so hopeful. It's like uh, everybody, or it seems like most people, or almost everybody, don't want what they are seeing in front of their face right now, and they are doing whatever they can to 
change it to show the world that this is not who we are. We're better than this. We're better than this. And that feels really, really hopeful. I feel people are more open than ever about creating conscious movies and putting out conscious books and, and just thinking more consciously about everything and exposing what is not true or what is not us. People are also a lot more open about exposing establishments that are purely profit-driven. One of the reasons why we are in the condition we're in is because we have always put profits before humanity, before everything, before health, well-being, humanity. Profits have come before everything, and people are now starting to realize it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Thanks so much for joining our interview with Anita Morjani. You can learn more about her at anitamorjani.com. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Now it's time for that promised AMA. Vivian would like to know if I practice a religion. I do not. I consider myself a spiritual person and I, I tend to think that the bones of religion and ideology around it or what causes a lot of divisiveness in our culture. But I very much believe in the teachings of Jesus and Moses and Buddha, but I, I don't ascribe to a certain religion. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episode drops, just hit subscribe. See you next week.